Hi, and welcome to the 72nd episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we're talking with Michelle Ondili. Our chat was recorded on the 22nd of November 2022. We talk about algorithm awareness, technology colonization in the global south, Etikas and Awasi, the register for algorithms with social impact, AI auditing, private versus public rights to consent, subjecting your algorithms to the Awasi register, various algorithms including hiring and social services algorithms, the possible over-datification of life or becoming an algorithmic subject, and also the intentionality of these services. You can find more episodes at machine-ethics.net or you can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Quick apology ahead of this episode. I feel like I was a bit rambly this time. So apologies there. Do bear with me. It's a great episode with Michelle and hope you enjoy. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. If you could please introduce yourself, who you are and what do you do? Um, my name is Michelle Andili. I am a researcher at Eticus, which is a company that does a lot of work around algorithm audits. And my work focuses on promoting algorithm observatories and essentially just creating greater awareness and impact around the effect of algorithms. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, the first question we always ask on the podcast is, what is AI? You know, you talk about algorithms. What are we, what are we talking about here? What do you mean? Okay. <laughs> I think the problem is that because of how ubiquitous it's become as a word, AI currently means everything and nothing. Um, the AI Act, I think, gets it right when it, it refers to it as a family of technologies. And I think the idea is that, you know, it's it's just a superset of machine learning that performs certain functions that are recognized somewhat as intelligent functions, um, even though I think that's a bit of a misnomer. But yeah, I think that's kind of the easiest way. It's, it's, it's a set of, of processes that leads to outputs that we currently quantify as intelligent. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, the, I guess if we dig down, we're talking about intelligent kind of behavior or like things that, mm -hmm. um, we're asking it to do and it just kind mm -hmm. of does it and we don't necessarily know the in-between bit. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, I'd love to hear about kind of your journey and, and, and how you got into this area. And um, I know that you were from kind of more of a law background. Um, so mm -hmm. what is it about algorithms and AI and the use of these algorithms that, that kind of um, gravitated you into this area? I think uh, so when I was in when I was doing my undergrad, I think one of the things that I really picked up on was that I I loved the idea of learning about, in general, we did ICT law, and it was really broad and vague. And so coming out of that, I had a practice attachment at a center that was focused on intellectual property and information technology law. And then I think my horizon just sort of exploded after that. And I am based in, in Nairobi, and I, I'm you know born, bred, and buttered, as my English teacher used to say. But 
I think one thing that kind of became very clear along the way is that because of um, living in what's called the global south, there is a lot of borrowing, there's a lot of replication, there is a lot of we, we get a lot of the technology either told to us or given to us in terms of what we need to do with it. And I'm interested and want to develop kind of a story that is just unique to the continent, unique to the country. And that's sort of where I really kind of developed my personal interest in it. And from there, I when I found Eticus, it just became a huge learning hub for me. The idea for me is really to understand how some of these policies get made, how the laws get made, and to be able to get to a place where we are as a continent, the originator of so many of these technologies and ideas. I find it, I mean, it's fascinating um, what you're saying about the kind of the use of technology or the kind of imposition of the technology in the global south from your your point of view that you just kind of get these things and <laughs> um yeah uh you're not co-creating them essentially yeah yeah and there's a there's a genuine um intrusion i remember uh during the cambridge analytica scandal um there was testimony that was given to the effect that one of these sort of testing hubs for uh, whether or not they could create a certain amount of manipulation in, in elections was based off of one of the elections that we had. And the fact that it was you know, almost seen as a, a, a laboratory setting mm. for something that would then be refined and exported, I think is, is the narrative of a lot of what goes on here with technology in the field of digital, digital identity. Um, there's a lot of companies that are you know, kind of landing here, there's a lot of um, datafication and we are not necessarily controlling the story, I think, as much as we should or we should want to. And you can see it really in, in a lot of policies. You can see it in the kind of intrusion um, of a lot of these big tech companies that are now trying to gain a, a foothold because it is a huge, it's a huge continent and it's it's a huge source of data. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what was it about Etikas and what they're doing? Um, I, I, I'm, I, I think they are internationals. They're, they're based in Spain, but they have people all over the place uh, which are interested, yeah. interested in this area. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. What What is the current endeavour of Etikas that you're, you're involved with? Uh, so currently what I work on is um, it's OASI. OASI is the Observatory of Algorithms with Social Impact and it's a register slash database that we we collect um, algorithms that are being used all over the world in public and private contexts and we try to shed a light on what is going on, where did they come from, when did they begin testing and what is the what's the effect because for us social impact is well currently it's very it's very harmful and negative in the realm of algorithms you think about discrimination you think about disrupting democratic uh, democratic processes you think about disrupting privacy so we try to find these algorithms and we try to present them in a way that is accessible and we also call for these registries to to actually be something that governments think about when they talk about um, open data and transparency Mm -hmm. So, um, 
I quite like the idea that you have this registry and as someone who might be making one of these machine learning services, algorithms, mm-hmm. AI products, that you might be able to just kind of uh, tell you or tell some entity that, mm-hmm. you know, information about it. Like it doesn't have to be your, let's right. say, the secret source, but um, right. you've, you've got this thing, it's uh, being used in this purpose. We are the people to contact about it. Uh, what what kind of other information are you kind of looking to to, to take uh, and to to make public? So we uh, we want to make public. I think especially the effect of having um, any kind of algorithm that has a social impact that is being developed and used without public participation. So in a lot of situations, we think about social services, um, risk assessments. You think about credit scoring there's these devices and there are these processes that are being used where people, one, they don't know, and two, they're not involved in a process of co-creation, they're not involved in the sense of informed consent. And to bring light to that and to bring light, I think, to the failings of any kind of, whether it's a government, whether it's a municipality, to alert and make its citizens aware has real consequences on how people are able to live their lives and ultimately the um, idea is to create a lot of transparency and a lot of accountability that there isn't right now. So if I'm going to be playing devil's advocate, right, I would say mm-hmm. maybe my algorithm is not perfect, but I can mm-hmm. process um, thousands of um, insurance claims or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other claims, uh, or kind of monetary, uh, claims or something like that, uh, instead mm-hmm. of tens a day or something like that. Right. You're, you're really hoping there's a real practical use mm-hmm. case. Um, cause otherwise, yeah. you know, why bother? Why spend the time and money? Um, right. so that, you know, they're not doing it presumably out of malice necessarily. So, right. Right. um, it, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm obviously with you on this one, right? But I'm playing, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so what are you saying to those sorts of arguments? Um, I think for one, there is um, there's a bit of a tendency to assume that any process which has been made faster and in quotes more efficient is either better than what existed before it um, or more objective than what existed before it. And what that does is it takes away accountability from individuals and it takes away accountability from institutions. But then secondly, it also continues to to have this, this sort of notion that it is actually better in objective. So if you think of something um, like, like RoboDebt, so RoboDebt was an algorithm that was deployed in Australia And the idea of it was that it was going to process claims for um, social security benefits Mm -hmm. much faster in much bigger amounts and was supposed to catch all of the benefits that were extra. So if you had, for example, uh, income that you hadn't reported, the idea was that it was going to be able to have an estimated income and then average that against the benefits that you were receiving and see if you were receiving benefits over that. And you would then be issued with... um, basically you'd be told to repay a certain debt that you owe to the government Mm. and the problem with this is that the actual computation of this number that you supposedly owed was completely flawed so if for example you are a graphic designer and you you earn money as per the projects that come in 
Yeah. And so there'll be months of the year where you might be unemployed. There'll be months of the year where for one reason or another, I mean, we talk about illness, any reason where you just might not be able to have a solid amount of income. So the system took an estimated uh, fortnightly average of what your earnings would be and said that based off of that estimation, you should receive X amount of benefits. So it didn't calculate for the fact that you can receive income intermittently. It didn't calculate for the fact that there can be one reason or another why the income flow is, is disrupted. And so hundreds of thousands of people were issued with these debt repayment notices. And in the meantime, their benefits were cut off. So what, what ended up happening is that there are people who paid back or tried to pay back whatever that they could. And it ended up being that the government had to acknowledge, one, that this was a completely flawed system, but two, that so many people in the meantime had been so deeply harmed. And the intention was not to harm people. The intention was to make more efficient a process. And the intention was to make process these claims faster. But the, the concern here is that, you know, the best intentions without an actual um, pre-approval. So you can have, for example, prior to implementing an algorithm, an actual solid um, audit process. You can have it during and after, and that can help you know whether or not this is useful because ultimately these are real people that you're impacting. And so I think sometimes it, it can be very flippant to, to think that volume is, is a correlation to efficiency or accuracy. Yeah, and I think I've actually heard uh, similar stories in other countries with um... A similar kind of distribution of, of benefits uh, payments actually so there must yeah. be, there must be a real like a uh, tendency towards yeah. um you using these tools for that sort of purpose i guess right um yeah so i mean what in your mind is the the valid alternative to that situation or like some i mean there's a myriad of things that you could do there one is obviously mm -hmm. just carry on with whatever process is there originally um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, you, do you think that they are um just wrong for adding this technology or is it just the way that they're adding this technology and that there are other options there um i don't think the technology itself is wrong i think sometimes the um, for for one the assumptions that are being made about the technology's capability i think mm -hmm. are often incorrect right. and uh, secondly their usage tends to say quite a bit about priority, about who gets um, subject to a certain kind of data process or datafication and who doesn't and who that benefits. If you think about credit scoring, if the idea is that proxy data is going to be used to determine whether or not you're able to repay your loan, well then you're going to be discriminated against based off of the area that you live, the people who live around you and whether or not they've paid their debts. So the idea here is that the the actual intention of some of these processes are not, um, well, I think societally, they show a skew toward an aggressive stance of either uh, criminalizing or locking people within a certain context. So for example, you are only somebody who is able to do X, Y, Z in the context of this data that we have. And ideally, I think in a situation where you continue to have a con like a consistent mediated process where you, um, it's the human in the loop approach where you have accountability and that's accountability one on the basis of informed consent, but two also on the basis of setting liability standards in terms of regulation, um, being able to 
not just opt in and opt out, but also being subject to an actual legal process if if you fail, when you fail. Mm. And some of these things I think can clear up a lot of the the murkiness that's around it. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors around the utilization of these algorithms. And there's a lot of problems with how this data is being shared between entities um, by governments and third parties. And the if the bedrock of this usage is supposed to be informed consent, then the idea is that the liability should apply there as well. And I think that putting it in a restricted context with uh, and fencing it around a lot of regulatory standards would really improve, you know, it would improve usage, utilization, and I think it would also start including the people it affects. Mm. I, I think it's um, really interesting what you said there, because in certain contexts, you have uh, the, the liability changes, right? So in, in yeah. the governmental context, you have uh, your citizenship, and you are you're beholden to the hopefully the democratic process and the laws mm -hmm. that we have in place uh, whereas you have a different set of uh, priorities and laws right. for uh, private entities right so yeah. i feel like I, I i'm almost disagreeing with you uh, apologize mm -hmm. but i think the consent <laughs> i think the consent thing for me is more of a private entity mm -hmm. issue and i uh, it's it's mm -hmm. weird because when you're working with uh, public entities and governments, you're mm -hmm. just like, well, the consent thing is murky, right? Because you're right, yeah. You know, it, it's less about consent because you're 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 doing what is best for your citizenship, essentially. And right, and, and right. I mean, if you're really nice, you can um, right confirm consent, right? Um, but it's right. not it's not like a necessary uh, thing like it is with private entities. So I feel like it almost boils down to, um, again, like what you're saying about priorities um, and mm -hmm. the priorities of the government being the the well being of their citizens and not yeah. <laughs> not yes. like uh, undue stress and um, yeah. uh, financial burden and and all these sorts of things that. It sounds like what you know that previous example was uh, was um, incurring on on them, um, uh, and, and yeah, like less uh, process, less recall, uh, recourse. Um, I guess if you're just yeah. not telling them like the process, then there's like this uh, there's lack of transparency, which is actually probably right. the biggest issue because you're like, well, right. why am I being sent this letter? Why do I owe money? I don't owe money. Right. To, you know, it's just like. Uh, and, and now I have to sort this out and I have to spend time in my life sorting this out when, um, mm. you know, I've got four kids or something. I don't know, some yeah. sort of mad situation, you know. Um, uh, yeah, so you, you're producing these um, new situations uh, f when you're trying to almost, like you were saying, um, you're not doing it in malice. You're trying to, you know, right. improve the situation uh, and you've, got to the wrong place essentially yeah um, i do think that um on the on the idea of you know with um public utilization and consent i think part of the problem is also that this the data that is you know for example if you are trying to get unemployment benefits you you have to you know upload your information to a certain portal you have to subject yourself to the process yeah. but if for example the the tool that's being used is a tool that's being developed by a third party, a private entity, um, and one. And then the thing is, if you don't know it's being used, I think a big part of this is just 
the idea that um, there's a lot of governments, I think it's up to 77 now, that have committed to some sort of open data policy. But if you have no idea that you are part of a process, then you have no idea how to, where to go when it goes wrong. Or, you know, a similar thing, I think um, there's a there's an algorithm that's called Noxcare, and Noxcare is used to try and identify people who are at risk of opioid abuse or overdose. Uh, essentially, the the you know the primary algorithm itself uh, relies on the prescription monitoring data that is this is in the U.S. Um, and that data is collected on the basis of physician prescriptions and pharmaceutical um, dispensation. So. This is medical data that is being shared, and Noxcare is developed by a private company. And so this is medical information that is being collected. The uh, PMDD, which is the Prescription Monitoring Database, is, is something that is collected by states. It's a, it's a state function. But then this data is shared with Noxcare, which gives a risk score. So if you go to a physician, you suffer from some sort of chronic pain, and they can refuse to give you the medication on the basis of that score, but people don't know that they're subject to this. And I think sometimes that's where you also have to take a lot of public entities to task. So I, I understand what you're saying, and I think it really is more about the open, transparent, accountable. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess in that case, you also get this uh, autonomy, like there's, there's a stripping of your, uh, your civil autonomy to... Um, you know, get that drug or, you know, you're, right. you're taking something back from someone uh, because of some data that they didn't know that they've submitted, you know? Yeah. So, so it's, it's both that transparency, but also like what, how much autonomy are we expecting to have in the future? If it's right. not just the drugs, it's like everything, you right. know, um, you know, there's this, uh, this idea of a, a nanny state or a nanny culture. Right. Um, right. You know, but it, it's more, you, uh, totalitarian. I can't say the word, but um, you know, it's like a, it's like an evil nanny state at that point because you, you can't, right. you can't uh, move within it in uh, some sort of clear way. So, looking on on your on the OAS, how can people get involved with Etikas and the mm-hmm. OASI? process and is that something that Mm -hmm. we're encouraging people to yeah definitely um we do have on the oasi site a a little area where you can submit algorithms for consideration and i think the good thing also about um etikas and about oasi specifically is that it allows it acts as a repository so this is a knowledge library it's a source and it helps people kind of connect the dots on for example if you're worried about um, a situation with social welfare, with um, these welfare fraud um, algorithms, you can kind of see what, what has worked or what has happened. We talk about um, any case law, we talk about any jurisprudence relating to that particular algorithm. So we encourage people to submit information about algorithms that they are either worried about, that they've been subjected to, or that they know about. Mm. And we are able to put them on the repository, but we are also able to look into it a little bit deeper. So besides the the registry itself, we do kind of separate individual um, kind of deep dives onto what particular a particular set of algorithms or what particular issue around algorithms is being focused on. And since we have a pretty 
decent extensive database of supporters and of organizations that we work with, then we can also pass this information along, start an independent inquiry, and that helps us continue to create this account accountable life cycle. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and is there another, I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of those examples of, of things that might go in there. Is, mm -hmm. there. is there another like really potent example that we haven't yet talked about that, that you can describe for us? Okay, the, like 10 of them immediately uh, <laughs> came, into, came into my mind. Um, well, first, I think one of the, the biggest things that we need to start worrying about and um, is in the field of labor and employment, and in particular, um, in hiring algorithms. So recently, uh, there's kind of been this, this driver, this push to have a through the hiring process, if, for example, you are being told, well, answer a certain number of questions, and then you submit a video recording. So there are algorithms. Um, there's Procedure, which is uh, being deployed in Germany, but then there is also HireView. And what they do is that you upload your 30-minute, 10-minute clip of you talking. And these are private companies that liaise with your potential employer, and the employer sets a certain standard of well, I want my employee to be like X, Y, Z. And those metrics are then translated into one, a psychological profile, but then two, a profile of presentation. So mm. well, based off of your response to a certain set of questions, it picks up your speech pattern, your language choice, the accent variation. It picks up how loudly you project the complexity of the words that you're using. And on the basis of that, it also says, well, in the case of Prasira specifically, it says that it has a psychological aspect to it where it can create a personality profile. This is really dangerous for a reason that I think is not usually highlighted when we talk about um, algorithm effect. There's a lot of disability discrimination in algorithms that uh, require and include a certain kind of language or facial recognition based aspect. And when you talk about hiring algorithms, if your language choice, if your speech pattern is being used to determine whether or not you are hireable, there are so many people who will either have speech impediments, who will not present as the algorithm is encoded to recognize as a good candidate. And that automatically locks out this huge segment of people who are already being discriminated against in a hiring context. And I think the dangers of this really compound when you think about the fact that it's under the sheen of objectivity and under the sheen of, well, the employer says this is what they want. And one of the things that need to be able to account for and take to task is whether or not we are contributing to a much greater marginalization of people in this ecosystem, because the harms that are being caused are being caused on the visible aspect. And a lot of the cases that get attention are related to gender bias and racial bias. But there's also a lot of um, smaller communities and groups which are subject to these processes with and without their knowledge and also completely helpless against them. So I think that in the case of labor management, um, even in the sense of uh, the way that currently there's a lot of uh, tracking and there's a lot of workplace facial recognition that's needed, what that does essentially is you, you take what you think and what you have determined to be acceptable. You say that this is some sort of objective measure of accuracy or fairness, and then you apply that to everyone. And it really does lock out a very important subset of the population that needs to be able to get work, that needs to be included. And they're not included really in the development, the deployment and the use of these algorithms. So I think, I think that's a bit of an underrated one.
Mm, I think that's a really good um, point. I think it touches on quite a lot of issues as well, like the implementation of these algorithms in a certain place, uh, the right. discrimination of a large group of people. And for me, I feel like it's never been super necessary that there's um, right. that, that even happens in a place. I think um, if I was a uh, like looking from a technical point of view at that situation, <laughs> um if you wanted to obviously it's not going to be subjective um objective in the way that um we imagine it could be but right if you're dialing up that like oh is this person you know uh, do they have some sort of uh, disablement in some way or some sort of uh, uh i mean everybody i feel like in the last couple of years have, have been affected mm -hmm. in different ways um mentally by um global right. happenings as well so i right. I, I think It'd be interesting to see if you could dial those things up and actually, um, you know, positively bias certain groups. Right, but, exactly. But, you know, these systems aren't necessarily built for that or like set up yeah. to incorporate that or yeah. uh, have been tested in that way. So it's, it's I think it's, it's almost, um, I'm trying to be like positive for a negative situation, but, you know, if, mm -hmm. if we were thinking more from the other direction and going, oh, mm -hmm. actually, like, can we help? these people in some positive way and it and it might not be like this hiring process but it you know mm -hmm. it, it could be part of some process that we are um trying to incorporate uh, some systems to help um you know our, our situation uh, and different people and to to promote um i always think of it as you know the the, the idea of ethics is uh, finding and promoting you know the good life and um you know right. Uh, curating our future so you know what are, what is the world that we want to be living in and it's definitely not like discriminating against large groups because they happen to be bad at presenting themselves over zoom you know what i mean that's right. like that's just like not yeah. the word yeah. uh, i'm gunning for anyway um yeah uh, you mentioned um you had a couple like lots of uh of, of options that you wanted to talk through yeah. um i think we've probably got another uh, time for another one if if, if that mm -hmm. was okay if you still had one in you um so uh i think one thing that i also wanted to talk about is um risk assessment uh, in the case of social services so currently and, and this is happening quite a lot in the uk there are algorithms which are being used to try and identify um, a need of social services. Mm. And what this, um, I think, just to kind of give a, a broad description of, of essentially what a risk assessment is. So uh, certain standards are, are placed against a certain weight. And so based off of the combined weight of those standards, you can either be at, considered to be at greater risk of for example, domestic violence, sexual violence, um, antisocial behavior, um, or you can also be not at risk of, of those things. So uh, what happens with these algorithms, especially in a lot of British local authorities, is that um, the specific one I'm thinking of is, is Zantura, which develops a predictive model for children's antisocial behavior. And so it takes certain models, so school attendance, um, whether or not there's police records involved, and it takes that to indicate whether or not the child is going to be at risk of um, any, any particular kind of violence, but also to determine their need of social services. And I think that this is tricky for, for two reasons, and, I want to, and this is why I want to talk about it. One, 
this algorithm objectively is supposed to do a good thing. It is supposed to be kind of an additional net um, because maybe social security services cannot be as attentive to correlations and linkages between um, school absences and domestic violence. And on the other hand, it's also supposed to make these processes give more attention to children in need. However, because of the design, I think of society in and of itself, and because of the design of some of these incidences, violence does not always present in one way. And so you can have a model which is helping a certain group and then determining that another group is not in need of help because it doesn't fit those metrics, even though you can still consider violence as something that is, you can consider it as economic, it can be verbal, it can be mental, it can be psychological. And so in a sense, to really consider the fact that uh, the weighting metrics are, they tend to be things that are pronounced and obvious. So something as simple as a police record. And yet we know there are so many instances where incidents are not reported to the police or cannot be reported to the police. And so it causes this catch 22 where you can't catch everybody, but you're also filtering out a lot of people from the system. And since you give the, the children who um, have a higher risk score more attention in terms of social services, it also means that then you say, well, these ones must not be in as dire need because they don't present this way. And it's very, it's, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous ecosystem. And, and this also tends to happen in the sense of it will, it will attract attention to certain locations and certain geographic fences than it will some other areas. It, there tends to be an over-criminalization or over-datification of the indigent. Um, they tend to be concentrated among certain socioeconomic demographics. And these are also correlating with racial demographics and gender-based demographics. And so you end up creating a problem within a problem that is really supposed to be a solution. And part of figuring out what it is that we need in society to help us is also being able to untangle are the complicated histories of what presents to us and what is the case underneath. And so I wanted to bring this up because I think we also need to kind of be able to hold in our minds the complexity of competing interests and also the complexity of competing outcomes. And a social impact can, by you know, for all intents and purposes, be positive, but then it can also be creating a much greater danger underneath it. Mm. I mean, I, I think we could really dig into that one. I think one of the there's, there's a couple of things which uh, spring to mind when you were talking, and it, you know, it really, like you're saying, it really depends on what you're measuring essentially. So, right, um, if you're measuring one thing over another thing, then you know you're you're enforcing that as the thing that we care about, right, in society, right, um, right, and, and even if we care about it now, like it might be dogmatic in the future we might need to make mm -hmm. sure that that evolves right with the changing of our situations and um right. movements of people like there's all sorts of things that change right and these systems um don't necessarily change or or the data gets needs to be updated and and what we measure might need to to change with those um uh with those peoples right so that we right. don't get into like you're saying this problem with a problem like this this kind of loop cycle um but also it's it, it, it is annoying because it's like you want to do good you want to be like yeah we've we've created this thing 
it is when we've like in the ideal world obviously we're not cutting all mm-hmm. of this other stuff in place of this thing right. this is an extra thing and maybe it'll catch people that slip through the net um right and that's on the surface seems like totally awesome and, and, and positive and right. i guess what you're saying is that even you know even if that is the case you could also have some of these issues that are attached to that um even if you if you're doing trying to do the best you can in that situation there's right. other, other considerations so what is it that Etikas and your what you guys are, are, are producing with um, Owasi, um, what is like mm-hmm. the, the end game? What's like the really the hope for this process and what you're trying to leverage uh, and provide? Uh, I think one thing is that we really do want to be to talk about how AI can be a tool by and for society. And we want to use this in the sense of just creating a hybrid methodology that's sort of socio-technical to be able to audit some of these algorithms, to be able to just look back and think not just about, you know, code-based design principles, but also to think about the environment that they're affecting and to be able to involve a large pool of stakeholders in the decisions that ultimately get made about people's day-to-day lives. A big part of Etikas' mission is to create this very real, very positive social impact and to say, well, they can exist, but they can only exist at the helm of a lot of regulation and at the helm of a lot of accountability. And we want to be a vehicle for accountability. We want to be a vehicle for visibility and transparency. And ultimately, we want to be able to create um, a lot of these systems or a lot of these processes that can make sure that these systems don't continue on to become completely harmful. Um, well, I think it's um, really fascinating. I, I know that when you guys contacted me um, and we had a chat, um, it was uh, great to see that you were obviously all really impassioned by this work. Um, I'm hoping that people can see like the importance of just, you know, bringing to light some of these um, things that aren't always transparent that we're kind of beholden to especially going forward you know especially as we get uh, further into all this stuff yeah and people like me uh, <laughs> apply datification in places um mm-hmm. you know what excites you in this area um using technology and, and ai and, and machine learning um and what really scares you about this area in the future uh, I would say what excites me is the this sort of development of possibility. I think that one thing is that there are a lot of great options in terms of how you can use um, AI to make processes more more apparent. And also, I think what it can say about what we think about society, depending on how we can peel back the layer of these processes, how things are made, how things are implemented. I think I'm excited to to maximize the the sort of human algorithmic interaction. And I would like to see not a separation of, you know, a so-called objective algorithm and human subjective intervention, but really a strong emerging of the two to realize one doesn't exist without the other. And in fact, one is more independent on the other. And I think that because of the directions that are being taken, especially in terms of regulation, we have the, the EU AI Act that we, you know, currently right now is, is doing the rounds and, and we hope it will become actual law. And because of that, we can actually create a society that 
that is beneficial. And we can do that hand in hand with technology. And we can also realize what technology's purpose is. But for as long as we remain the ultimate arbitrators or arbiters rather. Mm. Um, I think what I'm terrified of is um, uh, something I read recently, which referred to the algorithmization of society. I think that's what I'm completely terrified of. Um, if you think about what you see on something as simple as your social media feed, what you see, the decisions that are being made about you. If you go into a hospital and your data is being fed into several algorithms to decide what level of care should you be given, um, what's going to happen to you post the care that you're going to be given, whether or not on the basis of certain characteristics you deserve a certain amount of attention. And then you come out of that, the place, the house that you're meant to live in, you're subject to an algorithm which sifts through your history and determines that if you as a renter would be a an appropriate fit for the landlord. If you go to school and the algorithm determines where you're going to go to school, where your grades um, tell you you should end up. I think that there is a real fear of being subject to these imperfect technologies, which are then making critical decisions about day-to-day -day life. And I am terrified for, a, you know, a day where if you consider, you know, from the point of birth, a child just being subject to an algorithmic process at every stage of their life. I think for me, that's, that's what I'm very, very afraid of. Mm, um, I think um, I feel like I'm going to make a pithy comment about that, but I feel like uh, similarly, <laughs> like uh, I mean, I'm in the same boat as you here. With um, it sounds uh, pretty horrific. Um, mm -hmm. we, you know, we, we we want to use, we want to utilize our autonomy, our free will. Hopefully, uh, people right. believe in that. You know, we want to, um, you know, change our circumstances and you know these dogmatic systems or systems everywhere are not going to necessarily enable that um presumably or maybe not in the current form um, right so um i think we've come to the end it was really uh, good to have you on um thank you michelle um how do people find out about you and etikas and uh, follow you and all that sort of thing uh well first thank you so much for having me i really loved this conversation uh, well, we are, you can find Atticus at www.atticus.tech and you can find me at, well, it's it's a particular spelling of the name, Michelle. Just think of it as the boy spelling. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and yeah. So I think that's where, that's primarily where we're at. You can also find Atticus on LinkedIn and uh, on Twitter. And hopefully we get to kind of continue this conversation and we can create a, a real change. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Michelle for coming on the podcast. I think it's really interesting what they're doing with the Owasi register. It seems like one of those things which almost could be taken control of by European Union or some governments and you know kind of doing some of this work collating some of this stuff for us really um, so I thought that was interesting that they're doing that work and maybe it's one of those things to get spun out into other organizations in future uh, we'll see also be interested to dig deeper into the kinds of things that are submitted to them from um, services private sector that sort of thing and again the amount of transparency there is really interesting to me too Again, if you like this episode and like to find more, you can go to the machine-ethics.net website 
And if you can, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. We'll be back very soon with our end of year episode at the beginning of January. So we'll see you then.